0: World. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health & Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health & Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and establish community. I say establish community because I believe That we human beings are basically friendly cooperative animals particularly when we hang out in small enough groups where we know each other by name or at least by face plato put that number at about 1000 when we establish ourselves in communities of that size we're collaborative and look how we are even in gigantic communities we love to do things together Whether it's sewing circles or going to football games or playing golf or knitting or eating together. Oh, do we love to eat together? All over the country we eat together. We're tribal. We like being tribal. At the same time as we are, the vast majority of us are tribal and cooperative and collaborative, there's a very small percentage of us that are extremely different. These people still believe in the strong men mentality. These are the ones who wanted to come out of the caves and be the strongest caveman. These are the ones who are often misogynistic, often racist. They believe in leadership from the top down. They don't share our views of a democracy where each person has a vote and a republic where no one is above the law. Their view is the person at the top runs the show. And you could see examples of this all around the world. We almost saw an example of this with the January 6th insurrection, an attempted coup against our democracy and our republic. What this leaves for the vast majority of us is that we must stay politically aware and politically awake. It's important. I recognize that at least 60% of the American public right now are concerned about their finances, uncertain about whether they can make the rent uncertain about whether they can put the food on the table for their families. These are dire circumstances, but even in these dire circumstances, we must stay aware and awake so that the predator group does not take over our country. Please join in on this very important cause. It is the most important cause of our lives time. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have someone who's been involved in this cause for her entire life. Denise Kaufman was first arrested during the free speech movement. Some of you may remember or you've read about it that happened at Sproul Hall at the University of California, Berkeley in the 60s. She went on to join Ken Kesey. Remember Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters? She actually got on Ken Kesey's bus. Her name was Mary Microgram. We may hear about some of that today. Denise went on to form the legendary All girls rock band called the Ace of Cups. And I think she'll tell us, I think historically it might have been the first all female band. There's a lot more to tell about Denise. She's also a wonderfully trained yoga teacher and more and more. But let's get to the interview. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Denise.
1: Thank you so much, Richard. That was a beautiful, I love what you said about community. And it just touched my heart. It's exactly, exactly what needs to be spoken into the world today.
0: Yes, indeed. Denise, you've been on this path of social justice for your entire life. Where do we begin for you to tell some of your story and share it with us? Where would you like to begin?
1: Well, I think I would begin with my parents, who were both activists in the community that they lived in, which was San Francisco, and in larger political and social endeavors to make this world a better place. And that's, that's kind of, I grew up in that. I think I kind of shocked them taking things a little farther than they, they imagined, but there's no, it's not a coincidence that the passions of my life are what they are because that's what my, my folks were that way too. Yeah. yeah. So
0: you were born into a family of social justice.
1: Yeah. In in San Francisco in those days, there was a, there was a, an organization called the um, Council for Civic Unity, which was an interracial and inter- an amazing group. And my parents were active in that. They were active in many things, but they really were, they, they, they didn't just stay in the background. They were willing to take leadership roles and sometimes, you know, go against people, other people in the community that didn't, you know, that thought they were too, going too far, but they did. You yeah. certainly
0: haven't stayed in the background either. So, no, but, so how uh, old were you when you were arrested at the University of California?
1: I had just turned 18. The first time when we sat in around the police car, uh, when we sat in in the Sproul Hall Plaza around when the cops had taken away all the tables that had all the political brochures and, and political speakers. And then we, we sat in around the police car trying to uh, stop the arrest of Mr. Weinberg. And then... That was all before I was 18. That was in the first few weeks of the fall semester, 1964. But the free speech movement came together. And when we actually sat in at Sproul Hall, after not getting the action that we wanted from the Board of of Regents of the university, we sat in, there were over 700 of us, and we sat in at Sproul Hall, and that was in December of 64. And I had just turned 18, so I didn't get, I didn't have to go to Juvenile Hall. I went to Oakland City Jail.
0: Was it a frightening experience for you as an 18-year-old, or was it just so exciting that you weren't scared, or do you remember the emo- your emotional state?
1: Yeah, but, you know, we were in there overnight, and it was actually Hanukkah, so some of us lit candles, we sang songs. I mean, that's 700 people in Sproul Hall, right? But I was one of the kind of officials of the FSM, and I had an FSM armband, which was sort of, there was a little bit of a hierarchy helping to communicate because, of course, there were no cell phones. So I was one of the last people to be arrested. And at that point, the reporters had all left and the cops really beat us up. So that part was pretty scary. I had my arm, I had to go to the hospital afterwards and I had my arm in a sling for a while. So that that part was pretty terrifying. But the actual, before that, the hours overnight that we sang and talked and, told stories uh, the Hallinans, Ringo and Dynamite Hallanan. Yes, my I my remember friends, that. And they were I was h- hanging out with them and they were inspiring to me. They were, you know, they came from a really political family. So, you know, we felt we were part of a tradition of of protests and, and standing for freedom.
0: And so, after you get arrested for being part of a political protest and then you're let out of jail, I guess the next day, yeah. What do you do? Do you go back to life as usual? Were you in school, by the way? Were you in? School? Yeah, I was
1: a freshman at Berkeley.
0: Okay, so th- do you just go back to school like a regular day, and school goes on, or has your life changed dramatically? Uh, tell us a little about that. Well,
1: all up, th- up to that point, the whole fall semester was life changing dramatically because there were picket lines outside classes because so some people crossed them, some people didn't. It was a very tumultuous fall. Semester, and for me, the beginning of my freshman year. But, you know, I did try and keep up with the classes. One of my professors flunked me because he was uh, the Spanish professor and he was a Francophile, (laughs) not France, but Franco. (laughs) And so he was very much against the free speech movement, but other professors were in support of it. So, kind of how that, how the the, uh, curriculum related to what was going on on the campus was different depending on Mm -hmm. the professor. Yeah.
0: And how long did you stay
1: as a student at Cal? A little over a year, and that's when I got on the bus with Casey.
0: And how did that come about? Casey was down in Palo Alto. You were living in Berkeley. How did you even happen to come across that group and get involved?
1: Well, first of all, I knew the Palo Alto area somewhat because I had gone to my last two years of high school there, and Uh, I had gone to to Stanford for the summer between high school and and, uh, starting UC. So I had connections in the Palo Alto area. But I was playing with a band. I wasn't in the band, but I would play with them sometimes in Berkeley. They were actually all—they were still in high school. They went to Berkeley High, and they were the Berkeley High had and has a wonderful music program. They were great musicians. They were in the jazz band, and they were wonderful players. And also in that semester is when I started taking LSD at spring semester, and I wasn't like I never drank, I never smoked. I wasn't really, I didn't take any other substances really, but I heard about LSD from people I knew that were meditating and that were kind of an interesting people. And so I I tried it, like such DMT was the first thing I ever took and then LSD. But I was having such deep experiences. There were really not people to talk to about them. It was early on in the psychedelic explorations and I was having experiences of. You know, connecting to a oneness that was so much deeper and more potent than anything I'd ever experienced before. And I was tr- trying to make sense of being an individual and being part of everything. So, the guitar player in our band, Chip Wright, his father was the head of the Star King Theological Seminary in Berkeley, which is the theological school for the Unitarian ministry. And they were having a conference in Asilomar down in Monterey at this conference ground. And and Dr. Wright invited our band, the band, including me, to come down and, and play some at the conference and just be part of the conference. And when we drove onto the conference ground, there was this big, bright, multicolored bus and people in all these wild costumes. And that's how I met the pranksters.
0: And um, how soon after that did you get on the bus?
1: Well, I spent the night on the beach with Kesey that night and found him to be like in a way, the first person I could really talk to about everything that was happening for me. And he totally understood and had a lot to say about it all, because they'd all been experimenting with acid. And of course, he was turned on, as was Dr. Rice, who was the head of this conference, as were Larry McMurtry and Ken Babs and a number of other people. They'd all been uh, given acid by the U.S. military because they were all in the Stanford graduate writing seminar together. So they they had already been Having these experiences, so when I went to talk to Kezi about all this, he was a really listening, like a potent listening ear and heart, and he had a lot of insight anyway. So the next day after we spent the night on the beach, we spent the weekend there with the band and Kezi and all the pranksters. and then I went back to Berkeley. I had started summer school. I was living in an apartment with my with my adopted sister. Kesey showed up about three nights later and just said, I've come to get you. You're coming to live on the bus.
0: Really? So I did. Yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. And there are books written about that trip on the bus. Quite yeah, a there's
1: few. a few. Yeah.
0: And So for the, for our listeners who want to know more about it, you can, they can just Google Ken Kesey and the electric. I think it was Tom Wolfe wrote the electric Kool-Aid acid test, didn't he? Yeah. Yes. That's a fun And book. there are
1: more coming out. I mean, a mountain girl who is... One of the more amazing people that were part of that family, Mountain Girls, writing her book, but she just got a really interesting article written about about it. I'm trying to think of where it is, but I'm sure if, if you Google it, you'll find it. Carolyn Adams Garcia, also known as Mountain Girl.
0: Oh, good. Thanks for that. It's going
1: to be interesting because that'll be more of a, a woman's perspective of both the the bus and also her years with Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. So I'm, I'm excited for her book to come out.
0: So for historical purposes, <laughs> tell us some stories about life on the Merry Prankster bus.
1: Well, the bus had a, a number of amazing characters. Uh, Neil Cassidy, who was older than some of us. he was, And he was the um, prototype or the model for uh, Jack Kerouac's book, On the Road. He right. was Dean Moriarty uh, from On the Road. And so he'd been very much part of the beatnik era, which preceded us. But Neil was the main bus driver for a lot of our journeys. And riding with Neil was, it's like pretty hard to describe. The bus was wired with speakers all over and lights and up on top of the bus that you could ride on top of the bus. But Neil had like a microphone. And so when he would be driving, he would be rapping and his rapping was sort of like if you think of reality, sort of coming toward yourself or somebody. He would be like this magician that stitched all of whatever was ex- happening together and rapped about it in real time. And then those speakers went, were around the bus, and so you'd be hearing Neil of an ongoing commentary, probably accelerated by some something that had speed. <laughs> you know, he, and uh, so, but he was amazing. And so listening to Neil, I used to ride shotgun a lot, just on a little box that was next to the bus driver's seat. And I would just sit there and close my eyes a lot and listen to Neil's monologue, uh, which was amazing. And, those, monologues, know,
0: could, those monologues were made famous by Kerouac in his book On the Road,
1: right? Right. And Neil's books are fantastic. Neil has one called Grace Beats Karma. And the other one is called The First Third, about the first third of his life. And they're amazing, both those books. Well,
0: oh, that's um, good to know, Denise, because yeah. he's more famous for having been a character in Kerouac's book than he is for his own life in a certain way.
1: I, I think he's, it's much more potent to hear him in his own voice describing his, his life. He's amazing. He was, yeah, he, for me.
0: So you so you're driving yeah. cross country. You got. Cast- oh, I didn't
1: actually didn't drive across country. The bus had already gone across country oh. and returned to La Honda before I joined. I joined the I beginning see. of what what turned into the Acid Tests, which were which were these events that we started doing with the for one show the Warlocks, and then they became the Grateful Dead. We would do these events called the Acid Tests, where there would be a vat of Kool Aid that was had acid in it, and then other that's that did not, so people could, if they wanted to, could be get psychedelicized. But and then the band would play, and then we had Mike. We like have light shows, and you know have speakers all over and microphones that people could. By Neil could be rapping or Keezy or Babs or Wavy Gravy, who in those days was still Hugh Romney. So there was a lot of energy moving in a lot of different ways. But the idea was that that we could make a space that people could let themselves come out, take acid if they wanted to or not, if they didn't want to. But dance freely, feel the experience, drop into the oneness or the mush of it all and be safe because we create a container for that.
0: Those Kool-Aid acid test events, were, were they the seminal events that became what we call rock shows or rock performances? Wasn't that the beginning of what then became the
1: Fillmore and so on? Yeah, because we by the time like we started doing them in the summer of sixty five. No, sorry, yeah, sixty-five. By that winter we did a show at the Longshoreman's Hall in San Francisco called the Trips Festival. It was three nights and and it was a, a big event. And it was sort of what we've been doing with the acid test combined with the diggers and I mean all a number of artists in the Bay Area, Stuart Brand, Don Buchla, uh, the Early synthesizers, like kind of mo synthesizers, um, light shows and the, and the diggers and the mime troupe, which Bill Graham was the manager of. They, I mean, they were all part of it. So we, and a lot of the bands, like Airplane and the Dead. So three nights of tripping in a much larger venue with a lot of artists and people coming. And I, and I think it was after that and I'm not sure quite how soon, but Bill Graham ended up getting the lease to the Fillmore Auditorium. Yes. And, um, you know, and that started the the ball. You know, I mean, obviously there were rock concerts before. I mean, the Beatles had come to Candlestick Park and they'd come yes. to the Cow I mean, they were big shows, but they weren't anything like what we were doing.
0: I'm that. trying to imagine that party when one of the vats full of juice had LSD. And I'm looking at it also from a scientist clinician's perspective, and I'm saying, wow, I mean, some people must have taken like 2,000 micrograms, no question about it, right? Even more. And one of the interesting things that we know from those uh, historically important events is that no one ever died. Right. There wasn't one fatality with all that amazing amount of, of imbibing of huge amounts of LSD.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. In the, right. In the face of what the government was putting out about people jumping right. out of windows and going blind and flipping out and all the other kind of stuff. I heard one of those stories just recently again. Right. About people jumping out of windows. OK, take us to the next step. <laughs> did you what, what did you do? Did you, got off the bus and where'd you go?
1: Well, Casey um, got Casey and Mountain Girl got busted on the roof of Stuart Brand's apartment just before the trips festival. And they had already been busted before, so they were facing pretty big law enforcement. They got busted for uh, marijuana. And so after the Trips Festival, keezy pulled a prank where he left a suicide note in a car on a cliff somewhere, and then he went to Mexico. And um, after that, the bus went to Los Angeles, and we did the Watts acid test, and then subsequently uh, some other acid tests in L.A., and then the pranksters and the bus. Headed to Mexico to be with Kizzy, and I wanted to play music in San Francisco. I wasn't, didn't want to go to Mexico at that point, so I I went back to San Francisco and had a number of adventures. I don't know how people you want to go into it.
0: It's up to you. This is for the historic. You're a historical figure, Denise, (laughs) and and this is an oral tradition. And some of this is going to get written up in one of my books. So it's up to you how. I'll, I'll go as deep as you want to go because I believe yeah. in radical transparency. So there's no topic for me that's off the books. Yeah, it's
1: really more like how deep in each one. That I was like, we'd need a few days, you know, to get into all the different chapters. Um, but I ended up being in San Francisco and um, I had been before before this. I had spent some time at Esalen Institute in the early days of Esalen. I was really interested at that point in how do we access the consciousness that we can access through psychedelics without psychedelics or without any external something because I really didn't like coming down from those psychedelics it just it was always painful to kind of what felt like come like shrink back into a smaller identity
0: uh-huh
1: um uh, really and uh interesting
0: i've yeah, some, I've, I've sometimes find. The takeoff a bit bumpy.
1: Yeah, that can be going the other direction, yeah. right? Yeah. It's because we, you know, we get pretty used to these smaller identities.
0: You remember and what year you were at Esalen?
1: I was in Esalen, um from in 65 um, on. I mean, at, at different times, but yeah, yeah starting in. I
0: yeah. asked because I, I got there in 67. Got it. And I lived there for four months in 67.
1: Well, I'm sure we knew a lot of the same folks. I imagine so. Yeah. Uh, because it, what, well, how I went there for a marathon therapy weekend with my mom with George Bach. Try, yeah. Um.
0: George Bach was he taught me to, how to do marathon therapy, and I did marathon therapy with him at Esselin.
1: Well, that but you weren't doing it in '65 yet. No.
0: No. Right. I, yeah. Uh, no. I got yeah. there in the summer, uh, in April of '67, and and George taught me that weekend. Uh, right.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I was one of this a little bit earlier. My mom and I came down together, spent the weekend there. And, um, then I got invited to be, to come to a selection weekend for the first residency program they were going to do. They were going to pick, I think it was 12 or 16 people to live at Esalen for the year and do all the workshops and see what happened to the consciousness of that group of people. And, um, so they were having selection weekends to, decide who the people they were going to invite to be part of that group would be. And so I went to one of those selection weekends. I remember I rode down with Mike Murphy a couple of days before the weekend. I just got a ride down with him and hung out with Jafu Feng and his little waterfall. I remember Jafu. And he was the person who turned me on to chia seeds. And and we were just meditating and walking around. And he was very kind. I mean, I was like 18, right? Um, 19. 18. Anyway, um, but that weekend was, um, I, there were people from all over. I was the youngest by a little bit, quite a bit, actually. I, I was the only teenager there and a most, a lot of the people were themselves therapists or had other accomplished careers and, and, and passions. And, um, and at the end, uh, I was invited to come and be part of that group at Essel and live there for a year. Um, uh, well, at the end of that weekend, um, Do you know Ed Mopin?
0: Yes, I knew Ed Mopin. He was a psychologist. Actually, Ed went went to the University of Michigan where I taught. We had that connection.
1: Got it. So that weekend, at the end of the weekend, um, I got a ride down to L.A. with Ed and stayed at Ed's house because he was doing an experiment at UCLA where he was a professor to see if people that had taken LSD were more psychic or more open or more able to have a... Another level of communication than people who didn't, and so he paired people up, and he paired me up with a woman named Mary Ellen Klee. I know her. uh, My secret, and we, uh, we, you know, put this. It took us to UCLA, and he had one of us be the sender and one of us be the receiver, and then they would show images like film or images and play music into headphones, and then record us simultaneously to see what it was in in our case that I was sending or saying and what she was receiving. And um, it was quite an interesting thing to be part of. And um she got a lot of the things that I that I sent. You know, I mean she was yeah. Anyway, that was kind of an interesting moment. But then after that, I was staying at Ed's house and uh he started painting this giant thing in his living room that looked like a coffin and he was painting it. And it was kind of a little bit I, I was a little like I'm not sure about this. And I, I was sort I of felt out of my element and the Grateful Dead and the Franksters had already come to LA. And I remember reaching out and finding a way. I can't even remember how I did it in those days because no cell phones, but I found out some number for them. And I reached Pigpen, who was my friend, one of my friends in the Grateful Dead. And I said, Pigpen, I'm in this place and this so guy's like pinning a coffin. And it's a little bit, a little bit weird and not know. And I, and I didn't really know him, you know? And, I, um, so Pigpen came and got me out of Westwood and took me. And I rejoin it, and we did the Watts acid test sub- subsequent to that, and a couple of other ones. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, yeah.
0: I don't, I haven't heard about Mopin for for decades. I have no idea what happened to him.
1: So last I heard, he was living in the San Diego area and was doing body work.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: um, yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was a very sweet man. You know, uh, you know. I was just in a different
0: yes, flow. of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, what was ne- what's next on your journey, Denise?
1: Okay, so um, at that point, after we did the Watts acid test, uh, the bus went to Mexico, and I came back to San Francisco, and I had to make a decision about whether I was going to go live at Esalen for a year. It was coming right up, and I got invited to be in a band with some musicians I liked, and I was going, band, Esalen, band. You know. So the music went out. Um, and I declined the Esalen invitation and, and joined a band that later became Moby Grape. Um, but the the
0: what instrument did you play?
1: Well I played guitar and harmonica and sang and wrote in those days. Subsequently I studied sitar, I um played dulcimer and I and I went to music school on electric bass. But at that time in that band I mostly just sang and played some harmonica but i didn't it wasn't quite the band that I wanted to be in I didn't feel like it was my my home, so my friends well actually one of the band members and one of my my good buddies Merlin winter Martha winter and i left that left that band and came to San Francisco and lived in the hate and um the hate was so this is like sixty sixth um in the yeah. fall of sixty six and at that point when you were talking about the um the the lies that were being spread about LSD and, and the way the government was really terrifying people. I think my parents got really frightened at that point because acid was getting a lot of bad publicity. Yes. And I really wasn't really much taking it anymore because I'd been sort of in this whole uh, inquiry about with meditation, which I had sort of started practicing when I was a teenager. My mom did some yoga, so I you know had yoga books around and I was practicing. I was just trying to find out how do we access his shifts of consciousness or this deeper consciousness. But at the time, my parents, I kind of was like a delayed reaction to the last year and a half. And they, they tricked me into um, going to Mount Zion hospital where they committed me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a really weird thing because the actual events that triggered it were all mistakes. Like they were like totally misunderstandings. Like my friend Martha and I, had this long dress that we shared. Sometimes she'd wear it, sometimes I'd wear it. And one time, my mom looked out of her window and saw him, you know, Merlin as it, or Martha, lying just off the curb in front of their house on, on a warm day with the sun shining. And she was, and we were just talking, but she thought I was lying off the curb and I was trying to commit suicide. I mean, it was like nuts. But she, they were so frightened that they just got triggered by all kinds of things that were that were inaccurate. However, they they put me in the hospital and I ended up staying for three months because I really did want to try and work things out with them and have them not be so frightened. Also because the hospital said they could go to court and get me committed to a place like Napa and I didn't want that to happen. And so I was living on the psych ward for three months. I had to, my deal was I had to get a, a job and I had to save first and last month's rent to get out. That was part of my assignment. And um, my dear friend Ralph Gleason, who's like my godfather and dear my mentor and Ralph best friend. Gle-
0: Ralph Gleason? <laughs> the same Ralph Gleason that went to jail in New York for having a black and white hand on the cover of his magazine? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was my my best friend, really my mentor my godfather. I and I can't say how you know, he was my my guy, you know. Um I mean, he had his whole family, his wife Jeannie, and their three kids who are all a little younger than I. But that, he that just was, they adopted me.
0: That was a world-shaking yeah. story in my life when he got arrested for that handshake on the magazine. Yeah. I've told that, was that I've told right? that story my entire life.
1: Well, he was writing for the Chronicle by the time I met him. Um and but he was had been a founding editor of Downbeat magazine and he um had later um um helped Jan start Rolling Stone. So he you know, he but he was my like, he was my dearest friend. And so when I got committed, um, he called me every single day. And, and, and he, when, as soon as I found out that I needed to get a job and save first and last month's rent, he called Max Weiss, who, uh, who was the senior owner of uh, Fantasy Records in San Francisco. And he said, Max, you got to hire Denise. So I used to take the bus from Mount Zion Hospital and go over to Fantasy and run the office and the PR there. It was a little teeny company. There were the three owners. Max and Saul Weiss and Saul Zance, but Max was the main president. And then there was Edwin, who ran the record shipping room because it was all vinyl, of course, in those days. And then John Fogarty, who was Edwin's assistant, and he had a band called the Gollywogs, and they later became Credence, Clearwater Revival. Yeah. But John packed records in the record room. And while I was in the hospital, I um, met one of the occupational... Th- I had it in my room in the hospital. I had like keyboard, amplifier, guitars. I mean, I, I took over and just made it. I, it was like a hotel room. It wasn't a hospital room, like a little hotel room. So I just dropped all my stuff in there and was playing music. And a woman took me upstairs, an occupational therapist, to meet somebody on the top floor who was recovering from a terrible car accident. And his name was Ambrose Hollingworth. And he had had an accident and become paraplegic. And his roommate... Leslie Scardelli had been in a different accident and had become quadriplegic. And so they were sharing a room and they were great. I went up there. Ambrose used to manage Quicksilver messenger service before his accident. He was a mystic and an amazing soul. And uh, he wrote these amazing poems and I started putting them to music. And so we started kind of creatively working together. And one night, New Year's Eve, 1966, turning into 67, I went to a party at Blue Cheers House, the band that was in the hate, and I walked into an upstairs room and I saw a woman with straight blonde hair with an acoustic guitar playing the blues, playing really good blues, and she was like playing some like Jimmy Reed, some some you know just some really funky blues, and I pulled out a harmonica which I always carried and it was in the right key, so we started playing and we played for about an hour, and then she said well, my friends and I are starting an all women band and you've got to come over. You've got to be in the band. And I thought that was a really weird idea because I'd only been ever in bands with guys. And I was like, I I just, I couldn't even really imagine it, but I went over to meet them and we just sat around this little apartment and hate and started singing and playing. And I played them some of my songs and, and I went over a few times and then I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. And they all came over the hospital he said you have to come back
0: they came to the hospital yeah they
1: got me it was like so we started playing and we started writing and i took them up to see ambrose on the top floor of the hospital and he said i want to manage you so that's how the band came together
0: the ace Um, of cups
1: yeah and he was an astrologer and a mystic and he pulled out a a tarot deck and he handed us this card of the ace of cups and it's a card with a chalice and like a heavenly hand holding this beautiful chalice with five streams of water flowing out to water below and then water rising up. And it was the circuit of of creativity and energy and water relating to emotions and love. And so we kind of looked at the card and we went, yeah, that's us. So that was how we got our name.
0: So that was in the 1960s still?
1: That was 1967, January probably th- or 4th.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that was over fifty years ago, and I I heard a rumor that the Ace of Cups got together in recent times. Tell us, is that an accurate rumor? And if so, tell us about it. And then we'll Well, go back. Then we'll go back to the sixties.
1: Well, let me just give you a little background to get you forward. Okay. Um. So we we we, uh we started playing. So we started playing in January of sixty seven. Thanks to Ambrose and Leslie, we were able to quit our day jobs a couple of months later and rent a house in Marin County and just play all the time. So by June, and we were writing all the time um, and everybody wrote and everybody sang in the band. Um, so we had a lot of harmonies and a lot of different musical influences because of different musical backgrounds. But by June of that same, so we'd been together from January till June, we opened in Golden Gate Park for Jimi Hendrix. So we had a pretty fast ramp up to being able to play in the Bay Area music scene. Um, and you asked, you said before, you know, there weren't any all-women bands in the Bay Area uh, at the time. So we were, and we'd never seen one. Um, and so we kind of were making it up as we went. There, there were other, you know, women bands in other countries, and there were some in other parts of the country, but nobody was getting record deals at that time. Um, so, I mean, no all-women bands were, especially, you know, who played their own instruments and wrote their own songs. Um, so that, so we never got to, we never got a record deal. So we never got to go into the studio and record our own music. And mostly what we played was our own music. I mean, it, of the maybe 80 songs that I could look at on some of our playlists, um, maybe four of them we didn't write, you know, pretty much everything we did. So we, we never got to, we sang backups for other bands, for Quicksilver and for Jefferson Airplane and other people. We recorded with them on their albums doing background parts, but we didn't get to go in and have a deal and record our own music so well, fast forward to six to 50 well, years now one later, second
0: before we fast forward is the reason yeah. you didn't get the record deals because of attitude towards women
1: i think that was a lot of it yeah and i think we were kind of outside you know record companies were looking for who's going to be the next beatles or who's going to be the next birds or you know whatever uh you know and we didn't have or jefferson Airplane. we had Five lead singers, really, you know, so it wasn't, there wasn't like a front person, like a Grace Slick or a Janice Joplin. You know, we, our thing was much more, you know, different people sang with different styles and everything. And then we did a lot of harmonies, a lot of backups. We did different kinds of genres of music because we had different musical influences. And we, you know, we would just we were five hippie girls playing. Um, but you know, we didn't fit into much of a, an image of anything that was already out there. So, you know, so fast forward, we, we in 2003, um, well, a little before that, a really wonderful fellow named Alec Palau reached out to us who um, was representing uh, a record label out of England that was looking for old tapes and old recordings of bands of earlier time. And he wanted to know if Ace of Cups had any, anything on tape. And we had these tapes that our road manager used to make, um, just putting a tape recorder, like a reel-to-reel on the side of a stage and just record us just so we could hear how something went and see what worked or, you know, just for our own critique. Um, so we did have a box of tapes that had been carried around for like 40 years and had gone through a hurricane, like a hurricane on Kauai in a garage and still survived. So we had these tapes and we gave them to Alec and he cataloged them. And of those tapes, he drew some songs. They wouldn't necessarily even have been the songs we would have necessarily recorded, but it was all we had, or we didn't, you know, we the only ones we had a complete song. We maybe had some that was cut off. So in 2003, Ace Records division, big beat of Ace Records out of the UK released this album of old live tapes of ours. And, um, It was called It's Bad for You, But Buy It. And when that came out, that was really the first time that people could identify something about our music in relation to the name that they'd seen on all these ballroom posters. And, you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, spoke really highly of us in an article in in the UK. And, you know, so people were like, well, who are these Ace of Cups? But there was nothing recorded. So that record came out in 2003. And then... Yeah, people reached, I don't know it was the early days, you know, the internet, we had that little website and people would write to us from, you know, Argentina or, you know, all over. People would say, oh, I love your band. And it was like, and a lot of people would say things like, we knew there were women writing and singing, but there's just, you know, it was, just couldn't find anything, you know, uh-huh. from that era, you know, a little bit later, yes, uh-huh. you know, and certainly Janice Joplin, you could hear and, 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 uh, and Grace Slick. I mean, but in, in terms of all women, not not. And so in 2011, I got approached by a fellow out of New York, a young guy. He's like my daughter's age. And he had a little boutique label in New York called um, High Moon Records. And he was a fan of our music from hearing that live album. And he really wanted to find more tapes to release, and we just didn't have any. But we became friends, and pretty soon, we played for Wavy Great. We got together to play for Wavy's 70 birthday in 2011. And I can't remember if it was 70 or 75. Anyway, it was a big, wonderful event. And George, this fellow from New York, from High Moon Records, financed us all to come in and play and have our house to rehearse in for 10 days. And so he really wanted to support something with the Ace of Cups. And over the next few years, he helped Three of us get together and, and play music, and get, you know, cover plane tickets or whatever it took for three. Because nobody lived in the same place. So to get together and play. And by 2015, 16, three of us had been playing a lot together. And he said, and we'd been writing a lot of music, a lot of new music. And he just said, you've got to go in the studio and record your, some of your old stuff and the new stuff. So we, start, we found a producer, Dan Shea, in Marin County. And we, Marin County became our base and one member lived there. Our drummer, Diane, lived there. I lived more in LA than Venice. And Ellen looked up in Weaverville by the Oregon border in California. And we started, you know, recording with Dan Trey. Um, so, uh, and then Mary Gannon started flying in from Hawaii. And we, we, of the original five of us, four of us went forward to do this project and we worked on it for, you know, 2015, 16 for the next two years. And we recorded our first album which is called the Ace of Cups. Our first studio album came out at the end of 2018. We had a big show at the Marin Community Center in, in Mill Valley. And it was like 400 people came and we had like, it was so amazing. We had a great panel discussion and it was, man, we released this double vinyl with a 17 page book inside of it. And the vinyl had like 20 something songs, 20s. Yeah. Yeah. Two album, two, you know, when, that was amazing. And then we, we were still recording, and we ended up recording overall like 36 songs. And so we released, our next album was ready to be released in the summer of 2020. We had just finished all the work on it when the pandemic hit. Right. And we were supposed to tour that summer. We, after the first album came out, we got to tour. We played the Oregon Country Fair, and we played other with the Kate Wolf Festival. We uh, oh, played shows good for and, you.
0: You're on the road again.
1: Was so fun, and we went to New York, and we're on the Today Show for with, yeah, the with 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 uh, Hoda and Andy Cohen hosting. It was so much fun. We did that, and we were on NPR's um, sh- some of the shows there, and we, we had a great time. So we and we came back to New York one more time before the pandemic, and did a couple of shows there, and then and we had our our second album ready to come out, and we were supposed to tour that summer and then it all fell apart. Mm-hmm. With the pandemic, one of our members' husbands has Parkinson's and she can't leave him now. Another one has some dementia issues her her husband, her partner. So there I don't know that we will ever play live again as the whole band. Um it's not impossible, but it would take a lot. Um but And you- then we released what we released one more um EP this last summer, um about 6 7 months ago. So we released All of the music that we have recorded. So
0: that must um, feel wonderful for you.
1: It does. It's amazing. It's like I tell people sometimes it's like you have children that you, you know, kept like they've been in the closet or they've been in the house and they've never, no one's ever met them and no one ever got to play with them. (laughs) It's like all of these little creative expressions of all of us are out in the world. And that's.
0: And I'm finding myself wondering how much of all of this is attributable to those initial LSD trips that you took that opened up your life and your world and allowed you to accept and be part of all of this rather than tighten up and constrict and go in a whole different direction.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I was playing music long before I ever took acid. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of music in my, it was a passion. I was went to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music from when I was young. I was in the San Francisco Children's Opera. Wow. I, you know, I was always, you know, and there was music in our family. We sang a lot. And my parents, friends, we'd get together and sing folk songs, you know, with Uncle Max on the accordion. But um, but LSD definitely opened up. I mean, yeah, I can't quite imagine my life without it. <laughs> you know? And then, you know, there were a lot of other pieces of things for me. I, I came to Hawaii when I was 16 and I was like desperate to learn to surf and I came on a summer program and spent the summer on Kauai and learned to surf and fell in love with Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian music. So when the Ace of Cups split up in around 1972, by then I had been married, but then separated from my husband, Noel, who's a jazz player in San Francisco. And um, I came over here to with my friend Merlin and another friend to camp for a few weeks. On Kauai, and I was just like, I'm not going back. I'm done, you know. And, uh, so, you know, I ended up over time buying land here with my ex boyfriend and, um, managing a political campaign and getting together with some other women and starting a private school, which is 47 years old now. And so, you know, Kauai was very much, you know, when you talk about community, there was a really strong sense of building and supporting community here. there still is.
0: I want to hear a little bit about your farm.
1: Yeah, we have a little family farm on the North Shore of Kauai. And it's a little less than three acres, but it's adjacent to three other three-acre farms. So when you drive in, you drive into kind of a 12-acre piece that each family, each four families has their own little area. And we grow, it's organic. It's been organic since we got the land in 81. And we grow, it's orchards. So it's avocado, lychee, all different varieties of avocado, all kinds of citrus, star fruit, mango, long gone, yeah, macadamia nuts. And then we have really wonderful gardens. I garden with my my dear friend and neighbor Justin Long and his wife or partner Megan and their kids. And um he's my gardening guru. And um, you know, he's it just turned thirty-three and uh he's Lived a lot of places in the world. Grew up in Madagascar, and just knows a lot about gardening and plants. So we have a good time. We're going to garden today later.
0: What percentage of the food that you ingest grows on your own property?
1: Pretty much all of it. <laughs> I mean, what what you know what doesn't is like olive oil or Bragg's amino acids. Yeah. Or, you know, some of those kind of things. But as far as like the, I'm tofu. I you know I don't make tofu. I buy tofu because um, I'm vegan. I've been vegan for yeah you know going on twenty years like eighteen years maybe now, um, and I was vegetarian from when I was eighteen, so um
0: so you don't eat eggs
1: no, I don't my my family does, but I don't yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, yeah, no dairy i'm but I'm, yeah.
0: I'm vegan until dinner <laughs> and, and I, I mean it literally I'm very carefully a vegan uh, until dinner, breakfast and lunch, very careful, yeah. but then for dinner, I'll have a piece of sometimes piece of of buffalo, uh, and and there's a reason for that. But you know, th- because of what's going on with the meat and the fish and so on, I long ago had to say goodbye to that. It's it's right. it's, it's unfortunate. It's very, you know, here
1: it's a little it's a little different because I have friends that are fishermen and they go out and they catch a fish and they you know and so and it's you know I don't eat it anymore. I mean, I I used to one time ago, but I don't. But I I think you know certainly the industrial. Of farming as animals and, and you know something that i became vegan because of that i you know i became a vegetarian because one day i could never eat meat again the day before i loved meat so it just happened for me and i didn't know any vegetarians i didn't have any reason about it it was not a mental thing it wasn't political it was just like one day a piece of meat looked like a shoe a bottom of a shoe on my plate i could never eat it again so that happened that way but vegan becoming vegan was really. um just I couldn't participate Politically. in that system yeah
0: yeah see I thought I, I was eating fish and thought that was okay but then I interviewed Sylvia Earle on this program she's the world's foremost oceanographer and she's 87 years old she has more time underwater than anybody on the planet she's really you know the person in oceanography and she said Richard there is no place on the planet that you can find fish that don't already have plastic in their stomachs. Yeah. So even getting fish from my friends in Alaska, you know, my daughter Sarana and Aaron live in Haynes, yeah. Alaska, and their neighbor, their great friend, Greg Bixby is a salmon fisherman. But even getting that fish, Sylvia says it's full of, so it's partly it's full of plastic. I don't want to eat it. And the other part of it is the terrible industrialization of the fishing industry, as you point out. So it's yeah. a political issue as well. So, you know, that's how life is. I'm not going to, Cry over it. It's just uh, you know. It's a. It's it's an is what it is.
1: Yeah, I think that there's just ways that we can at least back off from our immediate participation in something that we think is wrong. Yeah. You know, I don't. You know, and I. You know, especially as elders, I think we can lead by example. So people are always interested when they ask me like, what, what I eat, and mm-hmm. you know, what's my and. I know. I think it's a little bit of all an offering, yes. from me to the world of like, okay, this is how I think it's possible to live, mm-hmm. if I, if you can, and make choices that are do less harm.
0: Mm-hmm. I do eat egg whites mm-hmm. because we we have we have sixty chickens.
1: Oh right! So
0: we raise our own chickens, and the chickens are friends, and they give us eggs. So I eat the egg whites joyfully, and, and you know,
1: I'm not a person that that thinks everybody should have the same
0: yeah. diet well, or not, anything else. But I'm not participating <laughs> in the commercial chicken industry right. and Tyson right. and all those folks and what they're up to. It's its horrendous. It's yeah. really ho- yeah. really horrendous.
1: But I feel like everybody's got unique bodies and constitutions and everybody needs something different. And I think, you know, it's important to not be so dogmatic that you don't listen to your own mm-hmm. body or your own health if you have, you know, health people that you console with in terms of health if they're going you really need to eat more egg whites you know like i you know i mean i I just feel as though you know it's a journey that you navigate and you have to navigate it between taking care of this and and the way that suits you and and how you want to live on the earth
0: i call this thing the transporter it transports me (laughs) i I live inside it and it transports me around yeah (laughs) you're a you're a a well-known yoga teacher how often do you personally do yoga nowadays?
1: Oh, I do it all day long every day would i, you would do, I
0: you're doing dog and I'm, cat dog and cat yoga like we talked about
1: yeah that's me i um i i teach i i don't do i have as you know, a studio here on our farm and on north you know, in past I would be teaching classes here and privates, but since the trend, since the pandemic, I have only done some privates here. I've really hardly done a couple of small classes for people I know. I, you know, my, my practices now is a slow, deep stretching practice called yin yoga that my friends, Paul and Susie Grilly kind of, I was part of the group that kind of developed what is now called yin back in 1990. And so I used to teach Ashtanga, which was a very more athletic practice and went to India and studied with Batabi Joyce. And before that I taught for Bikram at his studio in Beverly Hills. And i before that, I did other forms of yoga. I but I, I love the Yin work. I love the slow, deep stretch work. I don't go to yoga for a workout. I go to yoga for depth, staying mobile, getting deep and quiet. And that's what and it's sort of a foundation of of mobility for life. That's what a, my yoga is about. It's like physically mobility and and just flowing the chi or the prana or the energy through in a deep, deep, quiet way. That's what I want from yoga. I do Pilates four days a week and I, I'm in the ocean a lot and I go for good walks and hikes. So I do other things for working out, but yoga is the foundation or the yin work and the slow deep stretch work is the foundation.
0: Right before the program, we were sharing some thoughts on this. And I told you I do dog yoga and you said, yeah, you do animal yoga. You po- You pointed out that what I was saying about dogs all animals do, which is they don't go to a class at nine o'clock. They just walk around when they want to stretch. They start stretching wherever they are. And, yes. b- and you're saying you you take that on. That's how you are. You just start stretching wherever See, you happen yeah. to be if you're ready to stretch, right?
1: Well, it, you know, I, as a practice, don't sit in chairs very often. I do my best not to. Like right now, I'm just sitting on the carpet here. So as we're doing this, I'm I'm like just stretching into all these shapes while we're talking i'm on the i'm on the carpet a lot so you know i don't i have a whole website that i made called squat about the benefits of bringing your femurs or your thigh bones into your close to your spine or your rib cage however you can do it and and that that shape with the full flexion of the hips full flexion of the femurs This shape is the shape that stretches the whole backside. So you, if you only sit in chairs and lie down to go to sleep and sit in another chair and drive a car, which is sitting in a chair, you, your, you, your, your whole musculature and the overlying fascia and the ligaments and the tendons of your whole back and going down into the hips shrinks because our, 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 our connective tissue only Stays stretched when we go into those shapes and hang out in them. You know, it's like if you you had your arm in a sling for a while after when you took this you know when the arm healed and you started to be able to try and open your arm again, you would you wouldn't quite be able to if you were. Let's say you had six weeks in a sling, right? You lose all the musculature would shrink, and then you would have to like work on it to get it back to the full range of motion. Right. Well, people who live in a chair sitting culture lose that fluidity, that flexibility. And so that's why so many people in the West have terrible back issues. So I created this website called squat and squat you know, like, Okay. And it's just a little website, you know, it's not, it's not selling anything. There's nothing to buy. It's just so to inform people, like to get out of a chair and find some way to, first of all, be, be more of a dog or a cat, watch your animals. They're stretching all the time. And then, you know, the squatting shape, you can do lying on your back with your knees to the chest, or you can do it lying on your front in what is sort of called a child's pose or something like that, or a regular squat, like, you know, some kind of a, a upright squat, like a lot of countries, that's the way people sit, right. right? So, and that's how we're meant to, you know, all children naturally squat. And then they grow up if they do in a chair-sitting culture, and that ability can just diminish because... If you don't do it, a lot of people lose it.
0: It's a, so. great, it's a, great, it's a great piece of information to be passing on. I was laughing when, when you were talking because when I was courting my wife, we were sitting in her living room. Her sister-in-law came in. She was visiting from uh, North Carolina. We were in, My wife was in Denver at the time. And as she was walking into the room, I was picking up my left leg and bringing it up to my head, you know, like you just did. And, right. and then, you know, and she came in. She was standing there and talking. I put my leg down, then I picked my other leg up, and I and I pulled it and I held it up there for a while as I was talking. What I didn't know was she then went back to the family, and they said, "Well, what this this tell us about this guy that Jolie's dating?" She said, "Well, he was very nice, but I, he was sort of odd. I mean, all of a sudden he's lifting his <laughs> legs up in the air towards his face while we were
1: talking." <laughs> Oh, but I'm, s-
0: I'm so glad that i learned that many years ago to do that right. because it's it's i'm sure i i do have a lot of pain in my back partly because i'm six five and my posture leaves something to be desired so it's put strain and now i'm dealing with it but um, and you
1: probably sit in a chair more than you ought to
0: i you know it's very interesting you bring me back to this denise Because when I started after Esalen in 67, when I opened up my first clinic in San Francisco, the Gestalt Institute for Multiple Psychotherapy on Sacramento Street near Children's Hospital, I only had beanbag pillows in the entire clinic. There were no chairs. And then when I moved to Wilbur Hot Springs in 1972, we put beanbag pillows everywhere. But over the years the creep a pillow goes a chair comes in a pillow goes a chair comes in and all of a sudden all the pillows are gone and and chairs and you've just brought me back to and I think I may go out and buy myself a beanbag pillow.
1: I think that's a brilliant idea.
0: I think that could be yeah. really good for because what you're describing you know about stretching the you know the gluteus and the and the, and the piriformis down in there. Absolutely, you're correct in what you're saying about yeah. the chair versus sitting in some way to to stretch them out constantly. Yeah, we've got to spread the yeah. word on that
1: one. For- well, that's why I did this website. Okay, um, it's you know it's really just just to encourage people. We have a really fun song on it. My friends and I wrote this song and then made a really fun video so you can see the squat song. And then I do a couple of little teaching modalities on there, and you know it—it's just an offering to. And people find it. Like the Rolf Institute—they were using the squat really? song, and they were using this. Side well, side. I'll I go there, and i
0: will become an ambassador yeah. for your SWAT for your. Sw- Thank you.
1: And just know that you know you it you know it may be as simple as when someone wakes up in the morning to bring one knee as close in as possible. It Doesn't have to be into your chest. Be for some people, depending on their hip structure, it may be a little bit more lateral, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. But you want to, you want to, and you don't have to, you want to be able to just bring bring the, the femur in and just hang out there. You don't want to be too much effort. I mean, you want the way another way to do it that I love is to bring your buttocks up to a wall so that your legs are going, you're lying perpendicular to the wall with your spine perpendicular and your legs are straight up the wall, right? Yes, and then you just bring your knees toward your chest and the wall that will hold you in a squat or some version of it and then you just can relax because the point of stretching of this kind of sl- stretching the core is if you if you're uh, tense up and you're engaging the muscles too much you're pulling the joint space close that's what muscles do right they pull the joint space close. so you have to relax so you contraction open yes the vertebrae or you contraction open and just relax there and stay for longer. I call it zor- orthodontra for your, you know, for your core. You know, you want to be just slowly moving or stretching this connective tissue because it will stretch. You just have to relax and stay longer.
0: I've got compression in L2, 3, and 4, and nerves are being pressed on, which is causing a great deal of pain. And when you were doing that with your hands, I was picturing yep. myself being able to pull that apart, I wish I could just exactly fly over and study with you for a few days, and you'd fix I my. I wish back. you could.
1: I could give you a little program that you we could do it in two or three days. That would be. I mean, I've no. I mean, this sounds like I'm being.
0: You can. You're old okay. enough.
1: Yeah. No, but I, I'm saying I think these practices are so wonderful. I've known people that changed their life from just the simplest things. I mean, what, what happened this week? Somebody I know. She wrote to me, she lives on the island and she wrote, she said, I've been in terrible back pain. She, I've never, she's never done yoga with me. Her husband has because he's a surfer who was going through a lot and he's fine now. But she wrote and said, I'm in really terrible back pain. Can I do a session with you? And I said, yes. Yeah. And then the day that we were going to do it, she didn't feel too well that morning. So we were, everyone's being cautious about everything. And so I said, okay, don't, don't come over, you know, I'm not feeling well. But then I said, Be- just while you're there, why don't you just bring this? Was all even by text. It wasn't even by talking to her. I said, just lie in bed, bring one knee to your chest, and hang out there for like five minutes, yeah. and then bring the other one, and then bring both, and just do that throughout the day while you're resting because you don't feel too well. And she wrote me two days later. She goes, I can't believe it. My back pain's gone.
0: She decompressed the vertebra. Fantastic. That must have made you feel so good.
1: It do- it does. I mean, I've seen this. Is, I've seen this happen. So many times yeah. because it's not because when something is pressing on a nerve, you know, it only needs a little bit of space to be not pressing. on. That's right. You know, that's right. It's not like. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can just create that. Yeah. It's it's worth a try.
0: Definitely. Do you come to the mainland occasionally or are you pretty much in Hawaii nowadays?
1: Well, I haven't been since last May, Mm -hmm. but I might come over this May or June. Well, my if, grandson's playing the fest, some festival. Who is it? My grandson? My grandson. My grandson's a musician, and he's playing. His, he's living in the U.K. right now, but he's playing some fest. He's doing tours this summer and stuff, so I might come over and try and catch up with him.
0: Well, if you come yeah. over to California, I want you to come up to Wilbur Hot Springs and hang out. And, I'd uh, love to. And we'll get Rabbi Sid and, and Ellen Spiro up there with us, and we'll we'll hang out together.
1: Why don't you come here for a few days, though?
0: I'll, I'll. You know what? I'll put it on my my list. If, yeah. uh, you're I mean, I'd you... love
1: to see if we could if we could do something about that. I hate to have people be in pain. At least, at least, let's give it a try. You know. And it. I mean, I've had enough wonderful results with people that it's worth it to try and see if this kind of practice will make a difference for you.
0: You know, the invitation seems so sincere, Denise. I think I'm going to take you up on it.
1: Great. That'd be great, Richard. That will do it. Yeah.
0: I think that's a good place for us to stop. Wonderful. But it's only a partial stop because there's so much more to your story. And I'm going to ask Allison, our producer, Allison Willis, to connect with you. Maybe you'll give us a round two of this interview and we can fill in some of the other 50 years. Because we we really, we really fast forwarded from around 1967 to 2003, 2007. <laughs> and then, you know, with the... So, to be, Let's just say to be continued.
1: That sounds great.
0: Thank you so much for being with us thank today so on Mind, much. Body, Health, and Politics. And thank you, our dear listeners, for participating with us. Please go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, where our programs are archived and you can listen at your own convenience. Every 9 o'clock we go live on Tuesday mornings, Pacific Standard Time, 9 o'clock. Until the next time we're together, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.